a certain group of people who came looking for Jesus. They were called Greeks, we read in the King James. Essentially, they were Gentile proselytes. That is, they were worshiping the God of Israel instead of worshiping idols. And uh, they came out of a pagan culture. And they were in the city of Jerusalem. And they came and they, they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. They, they had heard about him. They wanted to meet him. And from that point forward, Jesus begins to really not so much talk to them, but to describe what was going to happen to him. So he said, except a corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bring forth much fruit. He's talking about his own death. And then he cries out to God and he says, Father, glorify your name. His passion in life was to bring glory to God. And the Bible tells us here in John chapter 12 and verse 28 that for the third time in the New Testament, God the Father spoke out loud to God the Son. The first time was at his baptism when he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The second time was on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was accompanied with Peter, James, and John. And also there was the appearance of Moses and Elijah. And God the Father spoke and he said, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him or listen to him. And I think that's important because the two greatest prophets in the Old Testament were Moses and Elijah. And he said, listen to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the great prophet who came to speak God's words. And then the third time is here as Jesus is getting ready to describe his death. And he cries out and he says, Father, glorify yourself. Glorify your name. And God spoke and he says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And I believe that glorifying it again is about what is, what, what is about to happen when Jesus was crucified on the cross. We come to John chapter 12 here in verse 32. And Jesus makes a statement that is worthy of our consideration this morning, that is worthy of our taking the time to really unfold it and to meditate and to think about it. And it's found here in John 12 in verse 32 and 33 where Jesus says these words, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word this morning. We, we reverence the word of God. We revere it. Because it is your word. And through it, it is the words of eternal life. It is through the word that the Holy Spirit illuminates our understanding. Not just mentally, but deep down in the soul, spiritually. Where you're able to separate through your word the difference between spirit and soul. And so Lord, bless your word this morning so that people will hear it. And through the the effective power of the Holy Spirit, will bring life and light through the gospel today, we pray. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think you would agree with me that we are living in a world that is constantly seeking your attention. In every arena of our life, we are bombarded every day with multiple distractions that vie for our thoughts, 
our emotions, our wills, our pocketbooks, and everything about it. So whether it's the television or the internet or the cell phone, whether it's texting or looking at social media via Facebook or Instagram or, or YouTube or, or some other means, or whether it's multiple subscriptions because cable TV is not nearly enough, you now have Netflix and Amazon Prime and Peacock and Paramount and Disney Plus and MGM Plus and Plus and Plus and Plus. I think, you could, I think we all have to be honest and say that we're being constantly engaged by the world's distracting and attracting power. Well, it is into this world that we're living in that Jesus announces that he is the greatest attraction on earth. For he says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men, all people to myself. So the question I'd like to ask and answer this morning is, how is it that Jesus is the great attraction? I mean, we are here this morning in this church because of Jesus. Because of the one that came 2,000 years ago, we are here 2,000 years later worshiping him, singing about him, announcing him, praying to him, giving to him, and serving him. And in some cases, people are dying for him. So what is it that makes Jesus the greatest attraction on earth? Well, let me say that Jesus does not attract people like the world attracts people. For Jesus said, if I be lifted up, he's not talking about being put up on a billboard. He's not being talked about being put on a television commercial. For he is speaking about a way in which he attracts people that is the actual opposite of the way we would normally attract people. Because God has already told us in Isaiah that his ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. Or let me put it in real simple language. God doesn't act like you and God doesn't think like you. That if you're going to follow God, you're going to have to change the way we think. That's called repentance. And we're going to have to think God's thoughts after God. How is it that God attracts people? The Bible says he attracts it by the way in which he died. Notice what he says. If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said signifying, that is, by being lifted up, what death he should die. How did Jesus die? He did not die by being beheaded. He did not die by being stoned to death. He did not die by being hung on a gallows, which were always people, all different ways people were put to death in biblical times. But Jesus Christ was lifted up and nailed on a cross. The cross was the worst form of death known to mankind in ancient times. It was invented by the Persians. It was perfected by the Romans to make death as miserable as possible. It was a death only reserved for the worst of criminals. And Jesus Christ was crucified, a death that was brutal, it was bloody. 
It was even beastly. It was so bad a death that the most committed followers of Jesus, the disciples, ran away from him when he was crucified. To die on a cross was, was, was considered to be a message of foolishness that the Apostle Paul would preach and people would say the preaching of the cross is moronic. It makes no sense. And yet God said that it is through the cross, by lifting Jesus up on the cross, that he will literally draw us to him. And by the way, that word draw means to drag, to bring you in some cases against the way you naturally would go. To bring about a change in your life. I want to ask you a question. Has Jesus Christ changed your life? For if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. For when Jesus brings you to himself, he changes you. He makes you new people. He takes you out of the old and he puts you into the new. He takes you from the kingdom of darkness and he brings you into the kingdom of light. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto him. And that's a powerful drawing. Because many of the people that Jesus saves are so antagonistic to God and yet God overcomes their own antagonism by the power of the cross. So what is it that makes the cross so attractive? Three things I want to say this morning. Number one, the cross is attractive to us even though it's not natural because the cross is a demonstration of of God's love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have life everlasting God commendeth his love to us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us the great apostle Paul persecutor of Christians never got over the love of God. For he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why is it that I'm drawn to a cross where the Son of God bled and died? I am drawn to the cross Because that cross tells me that God loves me. Probably the most powerful story in the Bible that illustrates this is the story of the old man Abraham and his son Isaac. Do you know the story? Who was Abraham? He was the father of the Jews. He lived 2,000 years before Jesus was born. He was living in an idolatrous country in a town called Ur the Chaldees. And God came to him and spoke to him. And said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your family and I'm going to make your family a great nation. And that, na- fa- that nation is going to be a blessing on the earth. Now, I'm not so sure that Abraham understood all the implications of that promise. But we who know the Bible know what the promise was. For the blessing of Abraham was the coming of God's son Jesus who would die on a cross so that both Jews and Gentiles could go to heaven when they die. That was the blessing. So God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your wife, 
because you're going to have a great family. Well, there was a problem because they didn't have any kids. And his wife Sarah was 60 and he was 70 and the chances of you having a baby at 60 are pretty slim. Folks, things haven't changed in 4,000 years. But God said, you're going to have a baby. So for 14 years, they trusted God for a baby. And at 84, Abraham and 74, Sarah, they didn't have any baby. Well, no, duh. So what do you do when God makes you a promise and it's not happening? You know what we normally do? We come up with plan B. You know what plan B was? Plan B was to have a baby for sure, but not through Sarah because it wasn't going to work. So I had to come from somebody else because the baby's going to come. And they had a slave named Hagar, handmaid. And so Abraham fathered a child through Hagar, and she had a baby boy. His name was Ishmael. And do you know what God said to Abraham? This shows you the kindness of God. Because if I'd been God, I'd been really irritated with Abraham. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless Ishmael because he's your son. But I want to be very clear, that's not the son that I promised. Because your wife is going to have a baby. And so 16 more years went by. Abraham is 100. Sarah is 90. And God says, now is the perfect time to have a baby. At 90 years old, Sarah gave birth to a boy, and you know what she named him? Isaac. You know what Isaac means? It means laugh. Folks, what else are you going to do at 90 when you have a baby? I had one lady say, cry. Now, I want to ask you a question. Uh, Inglewood is a, probably a little older community than some other places. So pastor said the medium age is what, 67? 67. So let me ask you a question. If a 90-year-old woman in Eaglewood had a baby, I mean a real baby, she gave birth to a baby, do you think folks would find out about it? Do you think it might make the Internet? How about CNN, NBC, ABC, National News? They all show up at this lady's house. It'd be a miracle because it is a miracle. This old lady gave birth to a baby boy. It was a miracle. God did it. And do you know what? Abraham loved it. He loved it. I mean, let's be honest. I'm 100 years old and I got a son. That's pretty cool. You know, I got some stuff, you know. I'm strong. I'm, a, I'm, I'm like a young guy. And every day he woke up, his whole day was spent around that little boy, I mean, what else are you going to do? You're in retirement. And you know what? At 100, you want to teach that little, just like your grandkids, you want to teach them everything you can teach them in the time you have. And so he taught him everything, how to be a shepherd, how to live in a tent, how to live in the wilderness. They were Bedouins. They traveled. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, God came to Abraham probably about 27 years later. Isaac was probably about 27 at the time. And he came to him and put on him the greatest test of his life. He said, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice on the mountain that I choose. That mountain was called Moriah. Today, Mount Moriah is the mountain on which the city of Jerusalem is built. 
And Abraham, without questioning God, because he knew not to question God because he did it before and it didn't work out very well. He saddled up his donkeys with his son, and they took a three-day journey from Hebron up to Mount Moriah. Three days. Now, I don't know what your relationship is like with your son. Sometimes I talk to my sons, but sometimes we're just together. And I can imagine for the next three days, that old man thought about God's promise. God said that that son would be the son of his promise, and through him would come a great nation. How's that going to be if I take his life? And oftentimes, folks, when we have to obey God, it doesn't always make sense at the moment. Because God wants you to trust him no matter what. But we know this, that by the time he arrived to the mountain, two things were in his head. Number one, and you can read about it in Hebrews, he had already concluded that if he took his son's life, God would raise him from the dead. And secondly, he had come to the conclusion that God would provide himself a sacrifice. And so they climbed to the top of the mountain. And Isaac said, Dad, here's the wood, here's the fire, where's the sacrifice? And he said in the Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. Would you listen to me this morning? Every one of you need a sacrifice. Did you hear what I said? Please understand me. Every single one of you needs somebody to pay for your sins. Because the wages of sin is death, and without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. God demands a sacrifice. And I want you to know that what what Abraham said would happen did happen. For God has provided for you a sacrifice so that your sins can be forgiven. And he laid his son down on that altar and took the knife and was going to take his life. And God stopped him. And suddenly called in the thicket, God had provided a sacrifice, for there was a ram that was caught by the horns. And he took the ram, and in the place of his son, sacrificed that ram so that his son could live. And folks, God gives us that story to touch our hearts. That what Abraham was willing to do, though he loved his son, what he was willing to do, God did do. God sent the son of his love, the son of his heart, his unique, one-of-a-kind son. He sent Jesus into this world, folks, to die as a sacrifice on a cross so that God can forgive you and wash away your sins. And why did he do that? Because he loves every one of you in this room. And that's what draws me to the cross because it's a demonstration of God's love. Number two, the cross is the satisfaction of God's justice. Now there's something that you have to understand, and folks, let me understand, help you understand this, that to understand the Bible, you have to use logic. And Paul the Apostle did it over and over and over and over. And one of the logical questions you have to ask is this, and I'm going to ask it and explain it. How can a, how can a God who is just... Forgive man who is unjust and do it in a just way. Or let me say it this way. How can God who created the law forgive the one who breaks the law and does it in a way that he doesn't break the law? All right, I'll illustrate it this way. Just a week ago, 
a shooter in Kansas City, Missouri, during the celebration of the Kansas City Chiefs win in the Super Bowl, shot and killed, was shot 21 people, and at least as far as I know, one died. And that person is arrested and brought before the judge. And that murderer stands before the judge and acknowledges that he or she, whoever did it, did it and says to the judge, would you give me mercy? And by the way, mercy means, would you forgive me and let me go free? As if I didn't do it. And if that judge showed that murderer mercy, what would you say about the judge? You would say the judge is corrupt. And the judge did not satisfy justice. You understand what justice is. Because in a world of unjust people, we constantly cry out for justice. Wrongs have to be made right. All right, here's the question. How can God, who is just in giving us the law, we, talk, we call the Ten Commandments, and we break the Ten Commandments, and we break them all the time. When Moses took the tablets that he had when he came down from the mountaintop that had the Ten Commandments on them and threw them down and they broke, that wasn't just for the folks living 1,400 years before Jesus. Those broken tablets represent everybody in this room because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And how can God forgive you and at the same time maintain his justice? And the answer, it's the cross. Because on the cross, God's justice and God's mercy meet one another. Because on the cross... God punished Jesus in your place. God's justice, God's condemnation, God's judgment, God's wrath against sin. Because folks, please understand, God is strict. He is. And fact is, if you read the Bible carefully, God is angry against sin. How many of you have ever gotten angry when somebody did wrong? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, God, who is perfect in his justice, God is angry against sin every time you and I sin. And I'm saying that because I don't think some of you believe that. And you need to hear that. Because your tendency is to make God be something that he's not. God hates sin. How do we know that? Because if you tried to go into the presence of God in the Old Testament days and walked in the room where the presence of God was located, what would happen to you? You would die. When David carried the ark on a cart, which should have been carried by the priest, and that ark began to fall off because the oxen pulling it stumbled, and a man named Uzzah put his hand up and touched the ark, what happened to him? He died. God is angry against sin and yet at the same time folks God is perfect and pure mercy you say I don't understand that of course you don't you're not God how can God who is just and strict forgive you of sin and show you mercy and the only way he could do that is through the cross and when Jesus died on the cross God punished Jesus in our place 
And all of God's wrath was poured out on his son. All of his justice was satisfied on his son. And now there is no more justice to be satisfied because Jesus paid it all. By the way, let me say this. You could die and go to hell and never satisfy God's justice. Because hell is forever and you can never fully pay for it all. And yet by the one act of that one man on the cross, those six hours he hung there, he satisfied God's justice. And that's why Jesus could say from the cross while he was dying, it is finished. What God required for the payment of sin, he did. And now it set God, if I could say it this way, in the right place to now show us mercy. And not only can he show us mercy, but folks, his justice demands that he show us mercy. Think of it this way. Justice works two ways. Justice can be against one that broke the law. But if you didn't break the law, you would expect the judge to be just and let him go free. God's justice demands that God forgives you because his justice has already been satisfied on the cross. It's already been paid in full. You can't pay for your sin, but you can receive God's mercy. And that's why Charles Spurgeon called him the greatest, the worst man on earth who went into the temple and he beat his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that day, the Bible says, he went down from the house of God, justified and right with God. Folks, let me tell you something. God will show every one of you mercy if you'll come to him. Why? Because God's justice was satisfied on the cross. That's what draws me there. And then finally, one last thing. Why is it that the cross is such an attraction? Because the Because on the cross, God promises his full pardon. That is, God makes a promise that if you would believe in Jesus Christ's death on the cross for your sin, his resurrection from the dead, you will receive from God full, 100% and complete pardon from all of your sins. And how do we know that? Because when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die by himself. For on either side of him were two thieves. They had committed the exact same sins. You know, when God looks at you and I, he doesn't say, you're a really bad sinner and you're not so bad a sinner. Now, the truth is, in life, we measure ourselves among ourselves. And let's be honest, there are some people in the world's eyes who are better than others. And they're not as wicked as others. But in the mind of God, he sees us all coming short of his glory. For folks, you don't have to break the law a thousand times to be a lawbreaker. You have to break the law one time to be a lawbreaker. So these thieves were dying for the same thing. And both of them started out Looking at Jesus. And you know what they did? They both mocked him. You don't start out a believer. You start out a mocker. You don't start out trusting Jesus. Now maybe some of you got, became a Christian when you were a child. Five, six, seven, eight years old. And you don't remember how bad you were at five, six, seven, eight years old. My youngest son, Michael, is 27 years old. 
And his, his sister, who was much older, there's, a, there's about a 14-year gap, she was in Bible college, and she came home from Bible college, and Michael was four or five years old, and she came to me one day, and she said, Dad, Michael is wicked. You can't believe what comes out of his mouth. And she went back to Bible college and asked for her roommates to pray and fast for Michael at four and five years old. Folks, the human heart runs from God. These two thieves were dying on the cross and both mocked Jesus. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. But something happened to one of them. We don't really know. Because we don't know what went through his head. But let's imagine just for a moment. First of all, this, these two men that were dying, they were both Jews. They were called thieves, but they were more than thieves. They were probably assassins. They were in rebellion against the Roman government, and they were killing Romans. So they had been called and sentenced to die with Jesus. All of them were dying capital for a capital offense. But he was a Jew. And that meant he would have grown up going to the synagogue and when you go to the synagogue, you hear the word of God read every Sabbath day. And he probably knew quite well the sacrificial system of God and the necessity of priests and blood sacrifices because he knew that God was holy. And he knew that he was a sinner and he knew that in a few moments he was going to face God in judgment. He also knew, according to the Old Testament promises, that there was going to come one who was a Messiah, a deliverer, a king of kings, a priest, a prophet. And he was going to come and deliver Israel. Fact is, that's why he's fighting against the Romans, because he wants to be a part of delivering Israel from the Romans. But he, maybe he remembered Isaiah. Because Isaiah talked about this suffering servant who would come and he would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. There would come one who would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. A virgin would give forth a child, Isaiah said, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isn't this the one they said that was born of a virgin? Isn't this the miracle worker? Is this the one that would be the suffering servant? And all of a sudden, I think what happened is, God illuminated his understanding. If I be lifted up, I will draw. You know what that means? It means that God does something in your heart and in your head where you start to see, you yourself start to see that that one dying on the cross was dying for me. Do you understand what I'm saying this morning? Because what happened to that man on that cross is the same thing that can happen to you. That God shows you that you need a sacrifice. That God loves you. 
and that God has promised pardon for the guilty, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, the, the prophet Joel wrote. And I think in that moment and that time frame, understanding that death was just a few moments away, he turned to Jesus and he said these words, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to him and what did he say? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And do you know that word today is important because there's only one time for you to get saved. And that is today. Today is the day of salvation. You have no promise that tomorrow will ever come. And many of you understand that. My wife often says to me, she says, Steve, do you know how many people woke up today and got dressed and didn't realize that today was the last day they would live? The time for you to get saved is not tomorrow. For that thief on the cross did not have tomorrow. And neither do you. And he prayed and asked the Lord to save him. And God said today, Jesus said today, you'll be with me in paradise. God provided for him the promise of a pardon. And do you know who was the first person to go to heaven with Jesus? It wasn't a prophet. And it wasn't a priest. Nor was it a king, but it was a thief on the cross. And if that thief can go, so can you. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men. He draws you personally. He speaks to your heart. I've never been to a church service yet that somebody didn't pray, Dear Lord, please speak to people's hearts. I want to ask you, is God speaking to your heart? He draws you powerfully because you would never, you would never naturally come because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Is God, is God overcoming you? First time I heard the gospel, a friend of mine said to me, you want to get saved? I said, no, I'm not ready yet. You know why I wasn't ready? Because my heart was hard. But two years later, listening to a gospel preacher over a radio, my heart was ready. I didn't fix my heart. God fixed my heart. He's the great physician. He's the only heart doctor in the world that can radically change your heart. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Is the Lord drawing you today? Then here's what I would encourage you to do. In a moment, we're going to have a word of prayer. And if you have never been saved, then today, would you receive Jesus as your Savior? Would you take him? You have to make a decision. You are saved by faith, not by works. Faith is believing God's promise. Just like the old man Abraham trusted God to fulfill his promise in giving birth to a son, you have to trust his promise. Just like God promises to take your sins away through the cross, you have to trust his promise. And just like that thief on the cross heard Jesus say today, you'll be with me in paradise, so you must trust him to save you. But the Bible says if you'll come to Jesus, you will never be turned away. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me, please? With our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, how many of you would say, preacher, if I were to die today, 
just like that thief on the cross knew that he would be with the Lord in paradise on that day. How many of you would say, preacher, if I died today, right now, I am 100% sure I'd go to heaven. If you could say that today as a testimony, would you raise your hand, hold it up. Thank you. God bless you. Now, if you didn't raise your hand, I want to thank you for being honest. And so I have good news for you. Today is the day of salvation. It's the day of salvation for you. You feel God speaking to you, don't you? Then why don't you right now just pray and ask Jesus to save you? The Bible says he stands at the door and knock. If anybody opens the door, he'll come in. And you will have a relationship with him. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray out loud a very simple prayer to be saved. And I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Just the other night, Friday night, we were up near Clearwater. and Four people prayed that prayer. The night before, we were in Fruitland Park near the villages. And three people prayed that prayer. It's not the prayer that gets you into heaven. It's Jesus that gets you into heaven. But prayer is a step of faith. And faith is the hand that takes the gift. Would you pray right now this prayer with me? Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, please forgive me of all of my sins. I accept you as my Savior. And I put my faith in you, Jesus, only you. I want to go to heaven when I die. And I thank you for your gift of eternal life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Now, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, did you pray that prayer today, sir or ma'am? If you did, would you be willing to do something for me? I'm going to ask you to do something. If you prayed that prayer, that is this. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to lift your hand. As you lift your hand, you're simply saying, yes, I've made that decision. Now, here's why I'm asking you to lift your hand. Number one... The Bible says in heaven they rejoice when one sinner repents. Heaven knows what just happened here, but we don't. So we want to rejoice with heaven. If you prayed that prayer this morning, in a moment I'm going to ask you to raise your hand just to, so we can rejoice. Number two, I'm going to ask you to raise that your hand for your own self. Because you are really saying, yes, I have definitively believed that I have trusted Jesus today. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, I wonder who would say, Preacher, I prayed that prayer today. If you did, would you lift your hand right where you're seated? God bless you. Yes, God bless you. Thank you. Preacher, I prayed that prayer today. Would you lift your hand? Anyone else? Preacher, I prayed that prayer today. I asked the Lord to save me. Anyone else today? I prayed and asked the Lord to save me. Anyone else? Now, Lord... We thank you and we praise you. You have said it. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. You said that 2,000 years ago, but that's your eternal word. That means it works for today. And for these, Lord, that have trusted you, I pray for your blessing on them. I pray that they'll come to a sense of assurance of salvation. And God, I pray that your word will go forth with power to those who have not come. We pray that they will still come. Thank you that your mercy is as high as the heavens. 
And we thank you, Lord, for the church where the gospel is still being preached. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.